a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. Bonjour, Mr. Gowan. Welcome Bonjour. to Montreal. Bonjour, Monsieur LaFon. C'est mon plaisir d'être ici avec vous aujourd'hui. Yeah, we. Uh, of course, we've got the uh, Styx REO Speedwagon Loverboy Tour kicking off on uh, May 31st in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah. Um, the Live and Unzoom Tour, which is fun because we're on a Zoom talking about the Unzoom Tour. So. Correct. We're going to Unzoom. We're going to Unzoom for that. I'm, I'm looking at <laughs> just realizing this could be called the Pillow Talk Tour. It is the Pillow Talk. And listen, the the last interview I did with a bed in the background was Rick Astley. So you're in good company. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you know, um, but quickly, quickly talk to me about this tour, because I, I have some uh, some deeper prodding questions about your past that I want to get to as well. Oh, <laughs> I, I definitely uh-oh. answer all those. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I'm going to change the lighting. Ah, that's a bit warmer. There we go. Yeah. Um, talk to me about this tour. It's going to be exciting. I mean, you, you really haven't had a chance to play a lot of shows. You did the residency, of course, in Vegas with uh, with Nancy Wilson, which yeah. was a great success. But uh, let's talk uh, you, Loverboy, and uh, REO Speedwagon. Certainly. Well, uh, let's start with the fact that uh, whenever Sticks and Loverboy uh, tour together, and we have a, a good number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty massive uh, 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 love in from the from the audience perspective because there, there seems to be a lot of crossover, uh, you know, um, fans of of both bands that uh, that seem to take the occasion uh, to uh, to really celebrate that. And for me, having Loverboy on the on the uh, on the tour is particularly great. I mean, we, we all love that band. I mean, it's, they're, they're great. Um, but for me, it's especially cool because the, we were both signed by the same A&R person at uh, Columbia Records back in the wow. 1980s. And uh, Jeff Burns is his name, uh, legendary A&R guy who had uh, pretty exemplary taste in music. And He, he did. And, and do you get to tease Mike Reno and say, look at this, I'm in sticks, you're not? I mean, that's, that's that's what I would do. You can say I'm a lover boy and you're not. Well, that's uh, true. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, too, too easy. I'm, I'm just I'm just t- tossing him a, 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 a nice, easy softball there. Um, I guess we should use a Canadian reference. I, I'd say basically I'm just giving him the puck in the slot. That's right. Shooting on an empty net. <laughs> exactly. So, um <clears throat> No, I, uh, you know, we, we have played a few shows with Loverboy, you know, well, actually every couple of years or so we do one or two. And it's one, they're one of those bands that we actually, you know, we leave the dressing room to go and see what they're up to because they're always really, really strong. And uh, Mike sings great. Paul is amazing. The whole band all the way through just uh, very entertaining. And they really deliver their songs so, so well, you know, maybe better than ever in a lot of ways, you know? Uh, so, uh, it's a great, uh, kind of triple bill, I suppose yep. you could call it. And, uh, it uh, is. it's going to be a great summer. And by the way, I, I feel bad for any band that has to, uh, come on after Loverboy because they, they are just spectacular lives. Yeah, they, so. set, they set the bar really high and we both, <laughs> know, both, both us and, and REO know that it's, it's, um, yeah, you, you definitely have to, 
They, yeah. they, they get a lot out of the audience. And you're going to hope that they've still got some juice left by the time you hit the stage. Yeah, you've got some heavy lifting to do. Uh, quickly talk to me about the uh, the, the flip-flopping of the um, headline slot. It, it, does yeah. that change anything for you? I mean, do you, do you change the set list? Do you prepare differently? Is there a men different mental sort of thing going into into a show where you know you're sort of i, I don't want to say opening for reo speedwagon but coming on before that does that change anything we all have varying opinions about that and right. mine uh happened to be that i prefer if i was given the choice i prefer the middle slot because especially after lover boy you know you you basically you have the audience really kind of at their peak right in the middle of the night as far as their energy goes um when we close the shows uh, as we will in a number of the cities, you know, half the cities anyway. Um, you kind of, especially if, you know, if it's one of those nights where they've really given up a lot of their energy early on, you have to kind of reawaken them and, and it, to, a, to a certain degree, you have to kind of get their, their full vigor back into their expression. Okay. It doesn't mean that they're not digging the show just as much. It just No, but we're 50 and 60 and it's a little harder at our age well, to keep, keep that excitement up. You know what? Mo the audiences that we play to now right surprisingly on, on any given night half the audience can be under 40 years of age so wow. they weren't born when some of the biggest records were made by by the bands that they're seeing and they they're the ones that kind of set the tone far more than the faithful who've been with the bands over you know right from the very beginning and it, it's it's their energy that we really kind of need to kind of ignite to, uh, to you know, to, to dictate how the how the rest of the audience is going to to more or less react. Um, so it's a it's it's a bit of a you know it, it, it's a uh, it's a, a marathon. You've got over four hours of of classic rock, and where they know every single song that the bands are playing. As far as changing things up, maybe one song. Maybe we might shift one song depending on whether we're uh, opening or or if we're in the uh, if we're in the middle slot well, if you or, need to reinvigorate them do you sort of take that song that's in the when in the encores or the big hit and say you know what let, let's let's toss it in the top five just to give them whatever renegade or whatever up front just to that's happened them. that's happened but you know the the embarrassment of riches i'm quoting jy here when it comes to great choice song choices for sticks is is really that that's the ultimate um the ultimate detonating advice uh, device that we have uh, as far as firing up an audience but yeah we, we sometimes will shift things around say for example put maybe fooling yourself a bit a bit earlier or too much time in my hands a bit earlier than perhaps it might normally be just just for that very factor that that that's that's great now all right i've got a few more questions about yeah. sticks and the new albums and all that stuff but first yeah. I want to do my little quick uh, Canadian uh, detour into Strange Animal, Great Dirty World, Lost Brotherhood, but you can yeah. call me Larry, yeah. because uh, I was talking to Tony Levin yesterday, and he was talking to me about how he enjoyed playing on your albums. And yeah. so, so so let me set this up, and then we'll, we'll discuss. So years that's ago, great. we did an interview, and you told me that the Canadian record company had sandboxed you, that, that that's why you couldn't really get out into the States because they decided that you were a Canadian artist. But at the same time, they said, hey, we're going to spend the budget on Peter Gabriel's band for you. Right. Um, uh, talk to me about about how <clears throat> those two things sort of, those two concepts don't match. They, they got the money to buy the, the great band, but they're sandboxing you at the same time. Great question. Great question. It's uh, I, I have to frame it a little bit differently from that. Okay. Columbia, CBS Records in, in Canada gave me their full 
complete support right from the day that I signed with them. Okay. Okay. And although my first album that came out in 1982, the, the Gowan record or whatever you want to call it, keep right. up the fight, um, although it was not a commercial success, they didn't lose faith in, in their belief in, in what, okay. what I could do. And the company at that point was, was run, was the president was a guy named a fellow by the name of Bernie DiMatteo, who was an American from New York. He was kind of sent to Canada to more, more or less oversee how the Canadian company was running. Okay. And they had an all-star what I would consider an all-star uh, cast there um, of from A&R to, to, uh, you know, uh, the promotion people and the art, the art department. And I, I think of them as just a, a gr the best example I, I, I've ever seen of really um, creative staff who are very music driven. Okay. Right. When I went to make my second record, the, 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 the big luck factor was that the producer, David Tickle played my demos. Uh, he happened to be in the car with Tony and Jerry, Jerry Murata, Tony Jerry Murata and David Rhodes also. And, yeah. And they heard the demos and they said, I'm, David Tickle said, you know, I'm thinking of making a record with this guy. He phoned me from the car, which in 1983, uh, uh, <laughs> it was like was a suitcase, <laughs> was an unusual thing. Exactly. A car, a, a car phone was an unusual thing. And I could hear that they were listening to um, the, my demos in, in the car. And they said, we really like these. And do you have a band? And I said, I have a great band that I've recorded my first album with. Uh, they're not my permanent band, but I, I'm more or less, I'm, I'm open to any ideas. He said, well, uh, I'm in the car right now. I knew that David was doing live sound with Peter Gabriel. Right. And I knew that because just a month earlier, I saw them play in Toronto at the band show. And during that show, Mitch, this is absolutely what happened. I had those demos. And as I'm watching Gabriel's band, I, right. I realized I need players with this sort of vocabulary to to record these songs i i need to find the these this ilk of of players because the guys i have here as great as they are they're not they, they, i don't think they have the the insight that these right. guys would have well, on well, to be fair nobody's tony levin except tony exactly. levin <laughs> precisely. <laughs> to be fair precisely to be fair that's absolutely right and <clears throat> i uh, you know i said that <clears throat> uh, at the show to the people i was with and it really was about a month later that that phone call happened. And I said, of course, I thought it was a ruse at first. You know, I hear I hear the English accent on the phone and I'm thinking, OK, so <laughs> who is this? And he said, I I've got Tony and I've got Jerry here in the car. And I said, uh, <laughs> I went, oh, great. Okay, put Jerry on the phone, please. And let me and he, go, and he goes, hey, man, yeah, we're listening to your songs. Yeah, we really like it. And I thought, ah, that's not Jer uh, Jerry's. Jerry and Tony are British. My assumption at the time, I assumed right. they were British guys. Did, little did I know that they're actually from around here. Actually, I'm a, I'm in Boston today. And Tony's from around this area. And Jerry, of course, is from uh, New York State, mm -hmm. I, I learned later. But as I'm talking to them, I'm thinking, could this be real? And so I said, I would, you know, if you guys want to record this record with me, that's absolutely would be my first choice. Right. Then the following day, David called me back and, and he said, would you be adverse to coming to England and recording the album in Ringo Starr's home? 
<laughs> I, I mean, I, come on, mind blowing. I mean, you're a rookie at this point, to be fair. Yes, and, yeah, and you've got and, you've, and, you've got the band that did Shock the Monkey, Games Without Frontiers, uh, yeah. King Crimson. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Ringo all, Starr's all, house. I mean, come all on. the concerts that I'd gone to. In fact, on on the Gabriel's third record, the Melt record, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which, by uh, the way, uh, I was that, look at yeah. that. I have the Melt record right here. Look at yeah. that. It's a beautiful record. It's a, it's a gorgeous On that thing. tour, on that yeah. tour uh, in Toronto, I saw them at Maple Leaf Gardens, and that's where they all came through the crowd from varying points in the in Maple Leaf Gardens. And at that show, and so that's 1981, I believe. Let's see. What's the, what's the copyright on this? Uh, yeah, probably about 81 or 82. Let's go early 82. Uh, Tony came by. I was on the aisle. We had good seats, and he, as he walked by me, I actually put my. He had the, they all had these lights, you know. I actually put my arm up around him and said, "Tony, we got to make a record together someday." <laughs> I've told him that story. I know. I know he, he thinks it's bullshit, but it, and that's absolutely what happened. Okay, um, and letters. exactly. So, and, and there in 1984. In February, on February the 7th, 1984, I know the date because it was exactly 20 years to when the Beatles came to North America. I walk into Ringo's house. Ringo meets us, at, greets us at the door, at the door of the studio, shake hands with him. And he says, what a charmed life, by the way. I, I, no kidding. I, 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 you know, it goes two ways, actually. There's a lot of, well, I'll come to the other side in a second. Right. But what did Ringo say? I cut you off. Sorry. That, that alone, that, that alone would be, would qualify as being a very lucky person. Um, I shake hands with, with Ringo. Good luck with your recording. He said, we'll be, we'll be listening. The kitchen is right here. The kitchen was literally right where, like as far away right, as right. that. Okay. Right where the bed is. Okay. It's where John Lennon made Imagine. Okay. So you, if people have seen that. <laughs> That was his house before. And the next day, you know, so we just kind of set up the demos. And the Uh next morning when we arrived, you know, Jerry Murata was there. Tony came a few days later. And we began making this record, um, Strange Animal. And, um, yeah, they commented, the guys really enjoyed the music enough to do it and and they they had a good a great time making the record and tony's never made any secret of that neither is jerry uh and um you know we we kind of we hold that as a great uh combined you know effort that we had making that that record in particular we they played it on my other records as well but um it it really is a, a pretty phenomenal um little piece of luck now the corollary to that is that despite the album getting to triple platinum in Canada, the the major labels at that time, the four major labels, they were the gatekeepers of who got to hear what, where on earth. Okay? Correct. The, so the because, sandboxers, as we call them. That's that's a good way to put it. They they controlled the market, therefore they could control all kinds of uh, all kinds of things, you know, money wise that, that that made them the 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 uh, you know the colossal major labels that they were. They had gigantic you know, I remember in New York, even recording in my first album and seeing, you know, what was called the black, they called the Black Rock building. Uh, I think it was 52nd Street and, and 6th or something like that. I could be wrong. But it's a giant, massive um, building in the middle of Manhattan. And you could see the power of the music industry back then was was just like that. There were many artists such as myself that fell into this category where 
they they relegated you to one part of the of of the planet and when they needed you when they felt they needed you that's when they would quickly open the gate and let you this is extremely boring but I, i'm just telling you no but it's, it's fascinating to me but all right so let me let me let me move on you, you talked about seeing the yeah. show so i want to ask you about showmanship in a second but yeah. when you first see you're a strange animal in a criminal mind on much music and stuff do you turn to your buddies and go hey I got Peter Gabriel. That's Peter Gabriel's band on my song. Like, were you like a like a kid in a candy store just saying, "Hey, you know that shocked the monkey"? Yeah, same guys. My my song. My song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't. I couldn't have been prouder of the fact that those are the guys that played on the, on those songs, and uh, you know, and and had become lifelong friends. Yeah. Quite frankly, I, I went and saw Tony just just before the pandemic, a few months before. Uh, with King Crimson, and I'm, I, I feel this great sense of pride that I, or not just you know, pride and, and honor and all kinds of things that I got to record with a musician of his stature and yep. and have him as a friend for for decades now. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm very 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 fortunate in that regard. So so let me just quickly ask you, you you mentioned how they came in at at Maple Leaf Gardens and stuff and. Yeah. The one thing that fans are going to see on a Styx REO Speedwagon Loverboy show is your showmanship. I mean, you you are fascinating to watch, jumping up and down all over the piano, spinning around. I mean, it's 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 jazzer size to, to Styx music. Um, <laughs> good way to describe it. Good way to describe it. But is that something you learned from watching the the likes of Peter Gabriel's and the Genesis and 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 I don't even know who else you might have seen back then. Alice Cooper kissed it. Did you sort of say, you know what? <laughs> I can't just be the piano guy sitting at a chair. I gotta be visual. That's a great point, Mitch. Yes, I early on, you know, I, I, I am I am the product of of what rock music begat. You know what I mean? Early on, I remember even when I heard Paul McCartney reference Little Richard, I had to figure out. I had to somehow we didn't have YouTube back then. Right. I had to somehow see what Little Richard was all about, and when I saw. That he was this very physical performer, mm-hmm. and then when I would see this, I'm going or Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, those guys, the, those, those yeah, guys exactly. rocked in, in the '60s. Now, right in the '60s, um, you know, seeing the seeing uh, Mick Jagger, uh, Jimi Hendrix, those guys, and how how physically they threw themselves into their performances. Mm-hmm. Even the Elvis special, the 1968 Elvis special, yeah. was a very big influence on just how man he is throwing himself into this you know, in, in, uh, physically. And then the early seventies, when I would see Elton John and, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. who else? Freddie Mercury, obviously, you know, all these kinds, kinds of performance and even Phil Collins. Right, they show. didn't have MTV to fill the image. You, you had to have a show that was so memorable that the fans would go, Oh, I need to see them again. That it could reach the back of the arena without any jumbotron or any of that you're yeah. there they're it, it, little guys on a stage and and to be able to project that kind of uh physical uh connection to the audience came down to their physical being yep. i was f- incredibly uh Im- impressed with that and and rick wakeman in his in his le- full length tape <laughs> I, 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 rick I as he calls himself on twitter <laughs> On on Twitter, he he calls himself Grumpy Old Rick. He's a grumpy old man. Well, well, when, <laughs> before he was a grumpy old man. <laughs> before then, he was a superhero <laughs> in a cape who played this massive keyboard setup, yeah. and that was 
incredible, phenomenal impression on me. And then Keith Emerson as well, you know, with his, the physicality that he put into it. So I always feel that I, I, I wouldn't be giving the audience their money's worth if I wasn't kind of moving there. And the spinning piano, for example, that came about making the album Lost Brotherhood. Yeah, Alex Lifeson was the guitarist on that record. And <laughs> I like how you just throw that out there. Oh, the guy from Rush was on my guitar. Yeah, we were managed by the same. We were under the same management, and so I, I got to know those guys a little bit. Um, you know, over the course of the years that we were together, and Alex, um, you know, just when I'm writing up the storyboard to it, we had this idea. Okay, so it'll be like Animal Farm, and then we'll have Alex step out of the barn. The barn will be all in smoke, and I thought boy, it's going to be really dull if I'm just sitting behind the piano for that. And that's where the idea of the spinning piano came up. And on the set of that video is when Alex and a bunch of the crew guys and my own band members said, are you going to take that thing on stage with you? And I thought, maybe I will. And that's was 30 years ago. So that that's part of the whole physical nature of how I uh, like to perform. It's absolutely uh, spectacular. Uh, just uh, before we, were, we run out of time here, um, Sticks for a long period of time, wasn't doing any albums, you know, 12 years between uh, Big Bang yeah. Theory and The Mission. Yeah. And then, of course, Crash of Crowns, and there was an EP thrown in there as well. Yeah. Uh, is, is that sort of the 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 upward trajectory where we're just going to be like, all right, every two, three years, let's get back to being a band that is making music and not yeah. just a heritage act playing the hits, even though it's, we love it, the hits. Yeah, exactly. Well, everyone loves the hits, so do we. Um <clears throat> Mitch, that, that's a great uh, observation. In that long gap, mm-hmm. the music industry was in such disarray at that time that we we kind of realized after making Cyclorama and then doing uh, Big Bang Theory before the TV show and putting out the live DVDs that we did, and we did several of those, that seemed to be enough to placate the, uh, the, the audience out there and knowing that we don't have the support, the proper support of the music industry isn't there. Therefore, let's do what we do best, go out and play as many live shows and connect with people. And we did that over that entire period. Well, things, the, the ship has begun to kind of right itself again. And Universal Records came back into the uh, into the, the life of the band and re-signed the band and they had the catalog. And with their support, we went and made the mission. And we made it with the intention of making a classic rock sounding record using old analog gear and basically connecting to that, to that era because young people have loved, have turned on to that sound. And when we completed the mission with our producer, Willie Vankovich, we realized, okay, now we're really onto something. And the, the way the audience has embraced that and the fact that we were able to go and play, well, we just last week, we played two shows where we played the mission in its entirety, one in Manhattan and one in, uh, in New York and uh, one in uh, Washington, DC. So, and we've done them in Vegas and Boston here, actually, last time we were here. So we saw that the audience really is embracing this new notion. That rolled straight into making Crash of the Crown. And when Crash of the Crown came out, it went to number one on Billboard's rock album chart, which is now, you know, a relegated chart where they have them all yep. divided up now. But this this tells us that 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 people do want new classic rock sounding music and, and sticks. We've made so many great connections with people touring the planet as much as we did in that long 12, I think it was actually a 14 year gap between records that, that there's so much goodwill out there for the band that we were ready to kind of embrace that and make new music. Yeah. And, and I'll, and I'll quickly tell you from, from my perspective, uh, bands that are, are from the era that don't put out new music, I have s- slowly lost interest in and just, it's like, you know, I've, I've listened to this album for 35 years. I'm done. But the bands that keep pumping out stuff sticks, 
you know, thunder in the UK, FM out of the U. It's like, oh, thank God, something new to call my own today. And you I know, love that. Uh, thank you very much for saying that. Part of it is 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 you know being able to be honest with each other and 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 say whether or not a new piece of music meets the standard and can stand alongside uh, the classic stuff. And and we would. <laughs> Sometimes painfully, you know, as we were writing the songs and putting it together, we we would go back and listen to Grand Illusion, listen to to pieces of eight, listen to a, a Queen album, a Pink Floyd album, you know, something of that era to see are we are we in the ballpark of of the quality and the and the the innovation of 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 the music of that era, and when we could look each other in the eye and say, I think we're on to it. Yeah. We had the confidence to know that this is this is good. This is this is the quality of what we want to do. We're not falling back on on uh, you know on doing things by rote or. Uh, but you have to be careful to not do paint by numbers and go. Oh, this okay, we did Grand Illusion. It goes this goes to this, and you know, that's no good. Not a puzzle. You, you know? can quickly fall. It, it can easily fall into a cliche, both musically and lyrically, and that needs to be avoided. I think more than anything else, quite honestly. Yeah. And yeah, I you don't want to be contrived. It's got to be real. It has to be real, and it has to ha have this authentic authenticity mm -hmm. to it. And at the same time, it can't reach. It's weird because it can't reach too far into the new realm because it suddenly sounds like, well, what are you, what are you trying to compete with here? You're, you're not, you know. You're not no. a hip-hop act. <laughs> no, you're not. And uh, I'll finish with this. Just quickly back on the showmanship. Uh, back in the day, Kiss would have Bill O'Coin and Sean Delaney study and say, oh, okay, you need to do this, you need to adjust that. Was that something that, that was part of your uh, upbringing or showmanship? That did, did you sort of study the videos and say, okay, look at this much music concert we did? and Or, did you just, or is it just completely natural? Or, or is there some studying and saying oh you know we spin that that piano way too much we gotta we gotta knock that down a bit excellent point i wish we had more time to discuss that in the yeah. 1980s yeah. from 85 on i went and got what back then was it you know this was the, my video camera the thing you put up on your shoulder i want to pick up this coffee machine <laughs> it, it was like that suitcase behind you like that size <laughs> this the, you put this on your shoulder right so anyway um Yes, after the shows on the tour bus, I, I got into the habit of studying the videos, of okay. looking at them and, and trying to figure out what, what's too much and what's not enough in all aspects of it. To this day, we do that, except wow. now we have, you know, the audience out there all doing this and they post <laughs> the things the next day and you can look at it and you can decide very quickly. Yeah, a little too much spin on that one. Maybe a little more, <laughs> actually, no, maybe a bit more spin and a bit more run across the stage. And hey, what's wrong there, you know, old boy, a little too huffy puffy? You, you know, get yourself in a bit better shape and run across a little faster. So, yes, we do that. We do that because it's it's a great way to, to stay, to keep your edge, so to speak. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and there you go. I know we're we're out of time because you got more more interviews to do today. But as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Toujours un plaisir. Always. C'est mon plaisir. Hey, hey, I want to say two weeks ago, I did I did five shows, five solo shows in Quebec, just myself and my son. It was a duo show wow. did, to to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Gowan au Quebec, and we put out a vinyl. We put out limited edition vinyl uh, copies of that. We're going to have them come out. At the show, they're going to come out on, on record store day, the, the 23rd of April. And, uh, you know, depuis le, le début, les le, le Folles du Québec uh, m'appuyaient, j'apprécie beaucoup. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Quebec for Gowan, Quebec for Sticks is, is just double trouble. It's perfect. It is. It is. <laughs>
Merci bien. Merci, Mitch. Great to see you. You too. Cheers. All right, cheers. An all-new episode of the Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.